This afternoon we have as our text what we summarize and confess as a church in the Catechism with Lord's Day 30. understand that last week, Reverend Wieringa did in fact read question answer 80, but we'll be reading it again and focusing on it again. I trust that will be okay with everyone here this afternoon. So Lord's Day 30, beginning of verse, or pardon me, question answer 80. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Papal Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us first that we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he accomplished on the cross once for all. And second, that through the Holy Spirit, we are grafted into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And this is where he wants to be worshipped. But the Mass teaches, first, that the living and the dead do not have forgiveness of sins through the suffering of Christ, unless he is still offered for them daily by the priests. And second, that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine, and there is to be worshipped. Therefore, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ, and an accursed idolatry. Who are to come to the table of the Lord? Those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. But hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Are those also to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who by their confession in life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, for then the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, according to the command of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they amend their lives. So far from our confession this afternoon. Beloved brothers and sisters of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, when we celebrate the Holy Supper, what are we actually remembering? What are we celebrating? Of course, we know the answer to that question, don't we? We're remembering the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're celebrating the fact that he died on the cross in order to take away our sins. And the bread together with the wine, they point to Jesus' broken body. They point to his shed blood. And this is, of course, an essential and central truth of our salvation, the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And yet we also know, congregation, at the same time, that it was not only our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who was working for our salvation. Because the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all working together in perfect unity to bring about our salvation. And even as we celebrate the Holy Supper, which has such a clear and visible focus on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we at the same time do well to remember that our salvation is, in fact, a work of our triune God. 
And when we come to the supper, we also confess that very thing. And so we have as our theme this afternoon, we come to the Lord's Supper confessing in faith, first, the sufficiency of Christ's one sacrifice, and then secondly, the love of God towards sinners, and then thirdly and finally, the unity that we have in the Spirit. So our first point, we come to the Lord's Supper confessing in faith the sufficiency of Christ's one sacrifice. And that is, of course, one of the the central and one of the amazing truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't it, congregation? That the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ is entirely sufficient to cover over all of our sin. It's sufficient to obtain this, this total, this complete forgiveness before the throne of God the Father. You can think, for example, of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul says to the Corinthians that he desired to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul points out here that the centrality of the cross and why is the cross so central congregation? Well, it's because at the cross of Jesus Christ, God was reconciling himself to his people. God was reconciling you and me to himself through the suffering of Christ. And what was he doing there? Well, he was making Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for our sake, so that you and I might become the very righteousness of God. It was at the cross of Jesus Christ that he was opening up that new way of access to him through the Son. And we know that already back in Lord's Day 25, the Catechism has emphasized that our entire salvation rests only on this one sacrifice of Christ. And here again, as we turn to Lord's Day 30, that point is made again, and it's made in very clear terms. The first part of question and answer 80, or I should say the first part of answer 80, it says it again. It says there, the Lord's Supper testifies to us first. That we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he accomplished on the cross once for all. You know, this is truly the heart of the gospel. This is what scripture plainly teaches. That Jesus Christ suffered once for our sin. And you even know that while Jesus was on the cross and as he was was hanging there with his dying breath, he said, it is finished. He, he suffered and died and it was done when he gave up his own life on the cross. His work of redemption was complete. And that's also why when we read through Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, the author of Hebrews again and again says that Jesus Christ's one sacrifice is sufficient. You could think of Hebrews 10 verse 10 And he says, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And then again in chapter 10, verse 14, he goes on and says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ's one sacrifice, which he accomplished on the cross, is sufficient And when we come to the Lord's Supper congregation, that is the central thing we are confessing about the truth of our Savior Jesus Christ. And now it's because of this wonderful gospel truth, because of the centrality of Christ's 
one sacrifice on the cross, that the authors of the catechism found it very important to point out what they saw as a a blatant error and a misunderstanding of the sacrament of Lord's Supper. And of course, you know that error which the catechism speaks about is the Roman Catholic Mass. And if we can jump ahead just for a moment to the end of answer 80, the catechism summarizes this question and answer by saying that the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. And now maybe you ask yourselves, well, how exactly did the authors of the catechism reach that conclusion? How do they decide that the Mass is really nothing but an accursed idolatry? Well, I think it's helpful for us this afternoon to first understand exactly what we mean by idolatry. And if you think about Lord's Day 34, we get a nice definition of idolatry. Lord's Day 34, question answer 95, it asks the question, what is idolatry? And there it answers the question, idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. So that's what idolatry is. And now you might ask the question, is the Roman Catholic Mass really idolatry? Aren't they still putting their trust entirely in their Savior, Jesus Christ? Isn't the Mass all about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Now, of course, on the surface of things, this seems to be true. But congregation, when you dig a little deeper into what the Catholic Church understands, you start to see that what they are doing in the Mass is not at all what God actually teaches in Scripture and what he reveals about the sacrifice of Christ. And why is that? Well, it's because every time that the Mass is celebrated, it's believed that Christ in some way is again being sacrificed. It's believed that in some way his his sacrifice is ongoing, they're trying somehow to perpetuate the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that's also what the Catechism is seeking to get us to understand in the second half of answer 80 there, where it says that the Mass teaches first that the living and the dead do not have forgiveness of sins through the suffering of Christ unless he is still offered for them daily by the priests. And so what has the Roman Catholic Church done? Well, they've decided that the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross is somehow not sufficient. And they teach that when Jesus Christ said on the cross, it is finished, that in some way it's not finished. Because they want this sacrifice to to go on and, and to happen again and again in the Mass. And congregation, with those things in mind, listen again to what the author of the Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 24. Hebrews 9, verse 24, we read these words, that Christ entered into the holy places, not made with hands, but into heaven itself, to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And then it says this, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
This is what Scripture teaches about the suffering of Christ. But we see that in the Mass, their trust is not found in the one sacrifice, but in the continual offering of Christ. They don't believe in that one sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. They've invented something additional to Jesus' perfect sacrifice on the cross. And so, congregation, what do we learn here? Well, we learn, and we are encouraged never to lose sight of the fact that the Lord's Supper is meant to strengthen our faith in that one sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And we're encouraged this afternoon to also flee from any thoughts of idolatry that we might have, also when it comes to the Lord's Supper. Now, I'm sure that this afternoon there aren't many of us here who might be tempted to doubt the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice in the way that the Mass seems to do. We don't necessarily have idolatrous thoughts in the same way the Roman Catholic Church does. But that doesn't mean that that idolatrous thoughts can't creep into our minds surrounding this sacrament in other ways. Now, to give one example, Lord's Supper Sundays are often the most well-attended services throughout the year. And one question you can ask yourself is, why is that so? What is it about celebrating the Lord's Supper which is so important, which makes us feel that that is the Sunday we absolutely must be in church. Now, don't get me wrong, congregation. Jesus Christ instituted the sacrament as a wonderful blessing for us to be strengthened in our faith. But don't ever lose sight of the fact that Christ has given not just the sacraments, but the preaching of the word. What could be more important than hearing the word, the very, the very word that works faith in your hearts? You know, we confess that the sacraments are meant to, to strengthen our faith, but it's the very word of God which actually works that faith in your heart. It's the word of God which strengthens that faith as well. And so this afternoon we can ask ourselves, is it possible that even in a small way we are putting more trust in the actual sacrament itself than in the gospel message which it proclaims to us. The gospel message that through faith in Jesus Christ your sins are forgiven. Something which the supper points us to. Now of course this matter of idolatry it can be even more subtle than that. How so? Well if you in any way were to doubt the sufficiency of the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you doubt that in any way, then you are down or starting down that dangerous path of idolatry. And why is that? Well, it's because if you don't entirely trust in Christ's one sacrifice, then you will go looking somewhere else for assurance. And where is one place that you'll go looking? Well, you'll probably start with yourself. And you might think to yourself that if only I read my Bible a bit more, if only my prayer life were stronger, if only I didn't commit those same sins over and over again, if only I could do all these things, then I would be more assured of my forgiveness. Then I would be more assured of my salvation. 
Well, congregation, if these sort of thoughts come into your mind, let me just say it plainly, that would be idolatry. And maybe that sounds a bit strong and shocking, but it's true. And I think we do well to be reminded of that. Because unless you believe that your entire salvation rests only on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, then you will always be struggling to find the peace of assurance, of forgiveness. You know, if you in any way go looking elsewhere, whether that's in yourself or or in your celebration of the supper, and if it's up to you in any way, never will you be assured of your salvation. And so what a blessing it is that we can confess that our entire salvation is entirely based on the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And as we come to Lord's Supper, that is the reality that we are confessing, first of all. And so we come then to our second point. We come to the Supper confessing in faith also the love of God toward sinners. Having now clearly explained how the Lord's Supper points us to the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, question answer 81 then goes on and asks, who are to come to the table of the Lord? And the answer is is rather straightforward, isn't it? It says in the first line there, those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins, and yet trust that these sins are forgiven them. But here we can ask the question in congregation, why is it that their sins are forgiven? Why is it that we have assurance in Christ's one sacrifice? Well, again, it's not because of anything we have done. It's not because of any worthiness in ourselves. But it's because of the love of God. It's because God, in his good pleasure, determined to send his Son to be that sacrifice for sin. Yes, it's entirely true, everything we've said up to this point, that the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ is completely and totally sufficient But we also know that that sacrifice would never have taken place if God the Father, in his love for his fallen people, had not determined from the beginning of time to send Jesus Christ into this world that he might pay for our sins. And if you want to think about Scripture proof for this, you can think about some of the most well-known passages in all of Scripture. John 3, verse 16 How does it go? It goes like this. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Or think too of Ephesians chapter 2, that great chapter on God's electing love. And it says in Ephesians 2 verse 4 and 5 that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Why did Jesus come? Why did he offer himself as a sacrifice? It was because of the love of the Father for his fallen people. And it's this love which we also saw quite powerfully displayed in Isaiah chapter 1. And in Isaiah chapter 1, we see that God's love in many ways is is surprising or even even shocking. Because as we read through Isaiah 1, surely you remember that that entire chapter is painting this picture of a a sinful and a wicked people. 
Prophet Isaiah says in, in verse 4 of chapter 1, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evil doers, children who act or who deal corruptly. And what is Isaiah going on and on about? Well, the problem with Israel is that they are bringing all the right sacrifices, but their hearts aren't in it. They've turned away from the Lord. They're going through the motions, they're doing everything right, but in their hearts they don't worship God. And in a shocking way, God even compares his people to Sodom and Gomorrah. He says in verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He's talking about his own people. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. You know, when somebody compares people to Sodom and Gomorrah, that's a pretty low blow. And what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, God wiped them out. And so God, having compared his own people to Sodom and Gomorrah, you might expect him to go on and and also say that he will wipe them out as he did those wicked cities. And so we come to verse 18 of Isaiah chapter 1. The prophet says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. And you ask yourself, what would be the reasonable thing to do to a people sinful and laden with iniquity? Well, the reasonable thing would be to wipe them off the face of the earth and to destroy them because of their sin. And yet God says to his people, come now, let us reason together. And what does he say in verse 18? He says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Now, how in the world can the Lord say something like that to a people laden with iniquity who are as sinful as Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, he can say this because he loves these people. He can say this because he loves these people so much that he had promised from the beginning of time to send his own son into the world to suffer and die in their place. God put Jesus Christ forward as a perfect sacrifice for sin for people just like this. And when we, congregation, come to the Lord's Supper, we are confessing this in faith. We're confessing the great love that God has toward us who are sinners. Because we know that were it not for the love of God, all of us would perish eternally. But as it is for those of us who hold on to our Savior in faith, God also says to us that though our sins are like scarlet, they are as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they are as white as wool. This is what God says to us. Also as we celebrate Lord's Supper, Because he in his love sent Jesus Christ to forgive us and to cover our sins by his precious blood. Answer 81 also includes a a beautiful line halfway through. It says also that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. The remaining weakness is covered. That's a beautiful thing to say, isn't it? Because there's none of us here this afternoon that don't continually struggle with with weakness, daily sins of weakness, as the Canons of Dort puts it. 
Nobody here has perfect faith. Nobody will ever be the perfect Christian. And you can apply this to every aspect of your life. Today, for example, is Father's Day. And yet among us, there is no father who will ever be a perfect father. No mother would ever be a perfect mother. No child a perfect child. Because we struggle daily with sins of weakness. Each one of us in our daily life and in the various callings that we have will fall short. And you know this congregation. You know what the will of God is for your life. And yet you also know that you struggle. Sometimes you struggle a lot to fulfill that will of God for our life because we still are weak. And there are times where these things just weigh us down. We wish we could fulfill God's will perfectly. We wish we could fulfill our calling without fault, and it's painful sometimes when we don't. And yet it's exactly here that God again comes to us in his love with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says to you, congregation, that though you still struggle daily with sins of weakness, your remaining weakness is also covered by the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ once for all, offered on the cross. It's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the catechism goes on to remind us that there is another side to the story as well. Because the love of God in Jesus Christ is not actually for every single person on this earth indiscriminately, is it? We learn in the Catechism, we learn in Scripture that there will be unbelievers and there will be hypocrites. People who don't repent. People who come to the table but who don't do so in faith. Or who come to the table and don't acknowledge their sin. And for such people, the Catechism issues this serious warning at the end of Answer 81. It says, But hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment on themselves. And we shouldn't think that this is just a catechism's fancy idea, but this is scripture itself. You know, we've heard from John 3, verse 16, but we should never forget about what it goes on to say in John 3, verse 18, where our Lord Jesus Christ says to Nicodemus that whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the reality for those who don't find their salvation in Jesus Christ, those who, who don't believe, or, who, or hypocrites who come to the table unrepentantly. And so we see that God's great love for sinners, which he demonstrated in Jesus' sacrifice, is for those who come to the table in faith, those who confess God's love towards sinners, those who are truly members of the body of Jesus Christ, something we'll discuss now in our third point as well. We come to the table confessing the unity we have in the Spirit. And already back in question and answer 80, the Catechism taught that the Lord's Supper also testifies to us that through the Holy Spirit, we are grafted into Christ. Through the Spirit, we are grafted into Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means that our participation in the Lord's Supper 
demonstrates that we are a member of Jesus Christ. Participating in the supper, consuming the bread and the wine, which points to his body and blood, shows that we have this union with Jesus Christ. And of course, if we are united with Christ and we are united with the body of Christ, the believers here with us this afternoon, And as we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, this unity we have is again visibly portrayed for us. We all partake of the broken bread. We all partake of the wine, symbols of Christ's body and blood. And as it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. And if you think again, congregation, of what is the The basis for such unity, the basis for that unity is Christ himself. We have become members of Christ. We are members of his body, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done for us in offering himself on the cross. It is through his blood that we are members of this new covenant community. And we can draw two implications from this unity that we have And the first of these is to guard ourselves against thoughts of self-righteousness or thoughts that, that you in some way are more deserving to come to the table of the Lord than others. You know, it can be very easy in our hearts to compare ourselves to other people in the congregation, to look at them and, and say that their sins are bigger and that when we come to the table, we think, well, that person actually needs it a bit more than I do. But that's where we are reminded by Scripture to stop in our tracks right there and remind ourselves again why we are coming to the table of the Lord. What makes you worthy, congregation, to partake of the body and blood of Christ? Well, there's only one thing that makes you worthy, and that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which covers over your sin. Because you too are just as much in need of the shed blood of Jesus Christ as anyone else here this afternoon. And with this in mind, if you still perhaps do have concerns about the lifestyle, about the actions of a brother and sister in Christ, then indeed go and speak to them. But recognize, first of all, that we all are on this level playing field, that our salvation rests in one place, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. And that leads into our second implication of the unity we have in Christ Namely, that we must ensure that this covenant meal is not profaned. We must do our part to ensure that the Lord's Supper is indeed upheld as a holy and a special meal. Because it is indeed an expression of this unity that we have as members of Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper is an expression of the the unitedness we have in the body of Christ. And so it would be wrong for us to allow people to come to the table who don't share that unity, who don't share faith in Jesus Christ. We can't allow people to come who don't believe in Jesus Christ and who aren't members of his body. You can think of the words that we sang in Psalm 50, verse 8, where the the rhymed version in the book of praise goes like this. It says, To sinners who do not hold him in awe, God says, what right have you to quote my law and to recite the words so dear to me? And in the same way, if we were to allow blatant and unrepentant sinners to come to the Lord's Supper, 
we would be disregarding the covenant of God. Allowing unbelieving and ungodly to come to the table would be giving them this false assurance that they have forgiveness when they don't. And it would also start to send a message to the congregation that, you know, your conduct in life doesn't actually matter. When in reality, the exact opposite is true. Because who really are members of the covenant? Who should come to the table? Who are united to the body of Jesus Christ? Well, it's those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins. It's those who seek to amend their lives. Those are the people who are members of the body of Christ. Those are the ones who are grafted into Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's those people for whom Jesus Christ has instituted the Lord's Supper. And so, congregation, let us continue to come to the Lord's Supper in faith, confessing when we do that because of God's great love for sinners like us, he sent his Son into the world as the perfect sacrifice once for all offered on the cross so that those who believe in him might have unity with Jesus Christ and with one another through the working of the Holy Spirit. Amen.